Good. Good to hear from everybody. Um, yeah, I, uh, as Aaron said, my name is Ian. Uh, I am the student ministry director here at Restore Church. Um, Longtime youth group participatee, first time leader. Um, sorry, still trying to figure out this mic thing. Um, this is my first time really doing this whole preach to adults sort of thing, so take it easy on me, um, and uh, we should be good to go. Aaron, like Aaron said, he asked me to preach a few months back, and I was really kind of not sure um, about doing it, and, you know, he said, my first question was naturally, well, what's the sermon about? Like, what's the topic? What's, what do I need to start studying? You know, that sort of thing. How much do I have to read? Um, was really the main thing. I didn't want to read a lot. And... Um, he said, it's coming in hot. That's the title of the sermon series. And essentially, you get to pick something you're super passionate about. And I said, well, like, where do I start? Like, there are a bunch of things that I could really talk for at least an hour on. Um, I could make a case for how all four major professional sports teams in Detroit will win their respective championships. There's one, one Detroit reference. I'm going to take the under on that, um, on 17. Um, I could talk about how Michael McDonald is the greatest musician of all time. 1A, 1B to Justin Timberlake, and or talk about how The Office is arguably the greatest TV show of our generation. I could make an argument for all of those things, and it would take me at least an hour. Um, but thinking about those things and how much I love them, I realized it was going to be really hard to find scripture to back me up on one or maybe two of them. Um, so I decided to move on, and it really wasn't until I was talking with Carrie in the living room um, to like really kind of settled on what I really felt like God was calling me to talk about. And she and I were talking about how lucky we were to kind of grow up, in our, or how I guess really more or less how grateful we were to grow up in the churches and in the, the circumstances that we did. And for those of you that don't know, I grew up in the Salvation Army, um, which when I say that, a lot of people are like, well, like, do you worship in the store? Like, like where people give the donations, like is that where you sing? Like people didn't understand that it actually started as a church and it started over in London in the 1800s um, as a ministry to uh, the homeless and the alcoholics of, of London and the people that were down and out. And so growing up in that church, it's very service oriented. So, um, you know, our church in Royal Oak, Michigan, we, um, we ran homeless shelters on the weekends and on various nights throughout the week. We ran different day camp programs throughout the summer for kids and youth basketball leagues, really providing a lot of different outlets and a lot of different ways that people in the metro Detroit area could essentially improve their lives or ways that they could find shelter, find clothes, find food. Uh, we even ran a couple, um, sorry, pardon me, found my, uh, lost my spot in my notes. Um, uh, lost it, or we, um, ran a couple other programs and services for Metro Detroit families. Even the school I attended, um, Southfield Christian School, I know Aaron likes to, I love to talk about how I like from Detroit, like lucky to make it out. Like I went to a private Christian school, okay? Um, um, every fall we ran coat and canned food and toiletry drives for Detroit Rescue Mission, um, empowering those who were serving and on the front lines to um, empower and serve those that, that didn't have um, what we had. So stepping back and looking at the bigger picture and talking about that with Carrie, I really just realized that um, like what I was doing then and what we were doing, what my church and what my school were doing was seeing the big, bigger picture of um, serving the poor in spirit, serving the needy, serving the hungry, the widow, and the orphan. Today, I would label those small actions really as kingdom building, as churchy of a word as that sounds. Um, I'm not sure anyone ever really uses kingdom building, although I could be wrong. Um, outside the church. Um, and that's really what I want to talk about today is what is the kingdom of God? 
and uh, what does that look like to us? What does that look like today? Um, Joel's message kind of dovetailed into that last week, and I was like, tread lightly, Joel. Like, don't step on my toes. Uh, so, Joel, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. Um, so, uh, before we dive in, um, I really obviously want to cover, uh, uncover a lot of different things about the kingdom. Uh, what is the kingdom? Where is it? How do we get there? Who lives there? And why is it talked about so much? Um, so before we really dive in, I kind of want to set the, set the stage and set a barometer for um, really the word kingdom and what it looks like in Scripture and what it, what it means. Uh, so the Greek and Hebrew words for kingdom are basileia, which is the Greek, and malkut, which is Hebrew. In both the Old and New Testaments, they refer to an action. In many of our minds, we think kingdom is a place or an area or a place that is ruled, where um, in Scripture, if you read kingdom of such and such, it really refers to more of an action or in, when you kind of transpose that, the rule or the reign. So you could, when someone says the kingdom of God, you could really transpose that to the rule of God or the reign of God. So, um, you know, and rule is actually a great translation because it's a word we use and we know, but not in our daily vernacular. I'm not going to walk into Andrea's workplace on Monday. If I want to take Andrea out to lunch during the middle of a work day, and I don't know why I thought of this, but apparently if I need to ask her boss for permission, I'm not going to walk in and say, hey, who's reigning here? Or who's ruling here? Like, that's not what we say. Um, another great example, this would never, ever happen. But if I were to go to a Little Caesars, and if I, if I were to have a bad experience, and hypothetically, if I were to need to talk to a manager... I'm not going to say, who's ruling this Little Caesars? Who's reigning in this place? I'm going to say, who's in charge? Who's the boss? Um, So that rule, that kind of that translation of kingdom into ruling and reigning is kind of something that's going to really form our conversation today and really going to kind of help put things in better context. So now that we've kind of got that out of the way, let's go back to the very beginning, the first mention of the kingdom of God. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Genesis 1, the beginning of all things, God creates the world. The land, the sea, the sky, the fish, the birds, the animals, everything. God realizes he's not quite done yet and creates humanity, which is his prized creation, his his crown jewel. Um, We're going to look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, really, to kind of get a a glimpse of really where I want to key in on the the creation story. Then God said, "Let, let us make mankind in our image in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So there are a few things I want to highlight in these first few, or these verses that we just looked at. First, the word rule. Didn't give that one away, what we've been talking about the whole time. Um, The Hebrew word used here means to manage, to cultivate, or to steward. So God really is charging humanity to manage, cultivate, and steward his brand new world that he's created. He's essentially given us a brand new car and thrown us the keys and said, have fun, multiply, create, enjoy the world, and take care of it. Um, Left to its own devices, creation would probably do okay on its own. What's Jeff Goldblum say in Jurassic Park? Uh, Life uh, finds a way. Um, It's not my best Goldblum, but it'll get there. Um... You ever have that garden or that patch of grass that seems to kind of always get out of control, whether you're watering it or whether, you know, maybe you go on vacation for a couple weeks and you come back and it's out of control? God essentially needs us to cut the grass. He needs us to maximize creation's potential. Uh, We're gardeners at heart. We're farmers. That's what we were designed to be. 
Um, so really kind of when you see this cultivate, steward, manage creation, God is calling us to be farmers and God is calling us to really take care of his creation. Here are the keys to the car. Don't get in a wreck. Of course, we saw how that worked out. Um, second thing to note, uh, the charge to rule, manage, create, cultivate, steward creation is directly tied to us being made in God's image. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over. There's always really been something that separates humanity from the rest of creation. Um, whether it's our decision-making, our free will, our spirit, uh, you know, whatever that looks like, and whatever you want to label it as, um, there's just something that separates us. In Psalm 8, we see a reflection on Genesis 1. Psalm 8, 3 through 6. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, angels, and crown him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet. We're made of dirt. We're earthlings. From dust you were made, from dust you will return, or to dust you will return. Um, but there's something transcendent or divine about humanity. Um, you know, in Genesis 1, it's called the image of God, and in Genesis 2, it's called the divine breath or the breath of life. So to summarize this opening act, God creates an amazing and perfect world. He needs help running it, so he creates humanity in his image, in his likeness to rule or bring his reign to earth. So looking at Genesis 1, you think, okay, great. God's got it under control. God has created a good and perfect world. His reign is here. If you fast forward to the New Testament in the first book, uh, Matthew, first words of Jesus, uh, the Jewish rabbi uh, on the scene, Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of God is here, which almost makes you say, hold on, time out. Where did it go? What happened to the kingdom? What? Everything was this perfect state. Well, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, it didn't take long for us to decide to do our own thing and for us to, to kind of go rogue. Uh, one chapter, uh, specifically. Uh, we decided not to trust God and his word on right and wrong. We decided not to trust God on um, how to treat each other and how to interact with him. Uh, we decided to rule on our own terms and create alternate kingdoms. We still don't want to be the conduit through which God rules. We really just want to rule. We want power. Um, so then, throughout the rest of Scripture, the narrative becomes God attempting to invade our kingdoms, what we set up here on earth for ourselves, to save us from ourselves, all the while we continually push him out. In the Old Testament, we really see two, like, first ballot Hall of Fame examples of earthly kingdoms uh, that end up crum crumbling, but they're like, don't be like these guys. Um, Babylon and Egypt are the two that really come to mind. They have really become the images and the icons for rebellion against God. In Revelation, even, Egypt and Babylon, the plagues and its downfall, are both referenced as we see God's victory over humanity. Not over humanity, over human kingdoms. Um, focusing on Egypt, Egypt was the first full-blown superpower in uh, human kingdom, and it thrives on injustice. Imagine that. Um, it's about national security. It's about economy. It's about oppressing an entire people group and enslaving them, and this justifies their rise to power. We've never seen that anywhere else in the rest of history. Um, so in that story, God challenges that kingdom. He sends Moses and Aaron in. God um, and Pharaoh have this little tussle. God obviously defeats evil, and Israel is freed, and they're liberated. And at that point, God says, 
All right, Israel, we're going to hit the reset button. I'm going to invite you to come live under my reign in the Torah. We're going to kind of set, set the slate, slim, or set slate clean. We're going to wipe it, and we're going to start over. Well, spoiler alert, Israel doesn't do so hot. Um, they struggle to live under God's reign. Instead of living under God's rule and being faithful to him, they say, we want a king like all the other nations. We want someone that's going to go before us, that our enemies tremble at their feet. We want someone who's going to make Israel great again. And we see how that goes. Um, we end up seeing them back in captivity. Babylon comes, wipes them out, and um, their kingdom that they seek to set up here doesn't go well, and they get a, essentially um, taken into captivity of Babylon. And that's kind of where we go next um, in terms of kingdoms. Obviously, we mentioned Babylon earlier. Um, sorry, I got ahead of myself. We see in Scripture the biblical poets still believe God uh, is the king of the whole world. In Isaiah 52, we'll, we'll read through that in just a second. But there are still pharaohs of this world, still kings, still presidents, still leaders of this world that don't recognize the rule and the reign of God. Quick side note, speaking of biblical poets, I find it interesting in Psalm 72, uh, it talks about the messianic kingdom, specifically addressing that. Two things we see happening in God's kingdom, uh, if we, if, when done right, under messianic rule, cops, crops and agriculture flourish, and the poor and the marginalized are taken care of. Those are the two things we see in the Messianic kingdom. Uh, this seems to resonate and line up with what we see talked about in the Gospels, but again, more for that uh, at a later time. Back to Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, we are seeing a low point for Israel. Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon. Their temple has been annihilated, uh, and morale is at really at rock bottom. Uh, where is our God, they ask. Uh, has he abandoned us? In verse 7, we actually get an answer to those questions. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. So this messenger that comes is bringing good news, which actually the term good news can be translated to gospel. Uh, the gospel that this messenger is bringing, that God still reigns. He's saying, look, I know things are really, really bad right now. We might have hit rock bottom, and it might not get better for a long time. But look, God is still on the throne. The God of Israel still sits on the throne, and he's sending a suffering servant to restore you, which is in the next chapter. Um, and Isaiah 53 is, is pretty well known. You could probably pick out a few verses from that. You're like, oh yeah, I know those verses. Here we see the dual nature of God's kingdom, where we're all still waiting for his kingdom to fully come here. God fully reigns in heaven, but he doesn't fully reign here on earth. Her, earth has not yet been combined with heaven yet. And so that's why uh, we have this need for his kingdom to come and to bring what is not here, righteousness, justice, and truth, which are things that we can all help bring. He rules in heaven, but here on earth, we live under the rule of kings, which, as we've seen in scripture and as we've seen throughout even modern times, leads to oppression. So looking at just a few spots in the Old Testament, we can really see where our image bearerness. don't think that's a word, but I made it up, image bearerness and our... Um, you know, that calling in our lives might have gotten warped, twisted, lost along the way. So God decides to scrap it and say, all right, I need to find a new plan. As N.T. Wright likes to say, and I don't do a good N.T. Wright, so I'm not even going to try. He likes to, uh, likes to say he needs, God wants to set the world to rights. So God's, God decides to bind himself ever so closely to humans through the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is God reinstating his rule by being the true image bearer on our behalf, which is good news. Jesus comes as the human we were all meant to be, and through Jesus we become the human we were meant to be, and God's image gets restored as we bind ourselves more and more closely to Jesus.
The kingdom of God is what Jesus actually spoke about the most, um, believe it or not. It's the first thing he talks about in three of the four Gospels, and in Matthew, it's mentioned 50 times alone. As we see Jesus come and start to live and to teach and to heal and to perform miracles, we are seeing how the kingdom of God is truly to be lived out. And really, the the drama of the Gospels is Jesus unpacking what it truly means to live as an image bearer and how to rule with God versus our expectations of what those things mean. Some of the things that Jesus talks about, the Beatitudes— you know, it's a list of nine blessings that he blesses, um, you know, certain people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the mourners, the meek, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Everybody expects rabbis to come prop up, well, the rich, the wealthy, the, the high in religion. Jesus says, if you are these things, if you're poor in spirit, if you're mourning, if you're meek, the kingdom of heaven is yours. It belongs to you. Do not retaliate when somebody wrongs you. Turn the other cheek. Lean into generosity. Someone asks you to walk a mile with them, walk too. Someone asks for your tunic, give them your tunic and your coat or your, your shirt. Lean into that. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't look for attention when you're giving to the needy, praying, fasting. Don't worry. That right there, I worry all the time. Don't judge. I judge all the time. And you too will be judged in that same way hard things that Jesus is saying, but it's the opposite. The, the upside-down nature of the gospel is really what we see here. Love your enemies. Don't hate them. And that's really hard because I know, especially in this area, we feel a lot of ty- certain types of ways about certain types of people. And so, wait, wait, Jesus, you're telling me I have to pray and to love these people that I don't like and that I disagree with when everybody in a group is bad-mouthing a certain person and I have to now say, no, I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to love them? That's hard. Pray for those who persecute you, not an eye for an eye. Many of the things Jesus talks about is how to live with others and the deals with the conditions of our hearts. What Jesus commands is the opposite of the way humanity has been living since the dawn of time. Do I have any Seinfeld fans in the house? All right, all right. Uh, I don't know if this is weird or not, but every time I think of the upside-down nature of the gospel, I do think of George and the opposite episode, where every time George finally comes to this realization of, Everything that I've been doing in my life so far has been wrong, so that must mean the opposite is right. Um, I kind of think about that when we, when we talk about the kingdom, and I actually have a clip here. It's about two minutes long, and we can, we can watch it. Zach, if you want to go ahead and play the clip. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's often wrong. <laughs> Tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee. Yeah. No, 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 wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked out for me with tuna on toast. <laughs> I want the complete opposite of tuna on toast. Chicken salad on rye. <laughs> Untoasted with a side of potato salad and a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's no telling what can happen from this. You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current, and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. Uh, George, you know, that woman just looked at you. So what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. Elaine... Bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents don't approach strange women. 
Well, here's your chance to try the opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to them. Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> yes. I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite and I will do something. Excuse me, uh, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. <laughs> oh, yes, I was. You just ordered the same exact lunch as me. <laughs> my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. I'm Victoria. Hi. <laughs> I know it's not quite the same lane, but I think the spirit of it is very similar to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. What is natural for us as individuals, people, groups, cultures, religions, countries, as humans, is to retaliate, to get even, to get angry, to get yours. You do you. Look out for number one. With Jesus, it's the opposite that we are called to do and focus on our relationship with others. Jesus fleshes out the kingdom, providing tangible ways we can partner with God, for example, Jesus has a conversation with a rich man. Man approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to earn eternal life? Or as it would be translated, what must I do to enter the age to come? Paul uh, references the current age, the age of sin and death, and you know this current age, etc. Um, and so heaven, a lot of times, was referred to as the age to come. So this guy wants to know, what do I got to do to get there, Jesus? Um, Jesus mentions five out of the six commandments having to do with our relationship with each other which would be do not murder, do not steal, don't lie, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. He leaves out the last command, which prohibits coveting. The man says, hey, I've kept all these. I'm good. What am I missing still? What's holding me back? Jesus then tells him to sell all of his possessions and give the money to the poor and follow him. Jesus does not tell other people to do this because it's not really an issue for them. Jesus knows the man's heart and knew that greed was an issue, and greed has no place in the kingdom of God. The man hasn't used his wealth or talents to seek or develop God's kingdom here and now. So how can he be trusted to institute God's reign in the age to come? What you do with your resources, time, money, and talents now impact where we see God's kingdom taking hold or cultivated in our world. Mark's summary of Jesus' message is that time's up, the kingdom is here, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom is here in a new and really sort of abrasive way, which forces repentance which really, when you boil repentance down, it just means to take, spot, or take stock, assess what's said, and respond. And to respond to Jesus' good news, you're kind of forced into it. You can't not be neutral to Jesus' message. You either say, no, I'm going to disregard that, I'm going to ignore it, and I'm going to keep living for me. Or, yeah, you know what? I'm going to sell all my stuff, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus. That is radical and, again, taken from Scripture, but I'm, the point to make is by ignoring it, you're serving your own kingdom. And by laying down your self-interest, you're following Christ. So what does entering or living in the kingdom look like now, today, 2019? A few examples come to my mind. Um, my brother-in-law, Nathan, and his wife, Natalie, actually live out in Tucson, Arizona, where it's triple digits all the time. 
my in-laws just got back from visiting a few weeks ago, and they were saying, well, we went out at like 7 a.m. to do stuff, got back in at 9, played cards for eight hours, and then went back out at night. Like, that's kind of life in Tucson. It's miserable, and it's a desert. Um, but Nathan, he's actually a landscape architect, um, and his wife, they love spending time in the outdoors together, and they've actually cultivated an incredible backyard of flowers, plants, and animals. That is partnering with God. That is restoring the world back to what it was meant to be. Many of you know Zach, holding down the AV fort today. Zach took a trip to Guatemala this past winter to drill water wells and to teach the Guatemalan people hygiene practices. This is kingdom building work. Zach took part in restoring the earth back to the way it was intended to be, giving water, maximizing creation's potential. He also is loving his neighbor as he does himself. Our friends Tyler and Sarah recently have entered into the foster parent arena, taking in children that don't have homes or parents and providing stability and love and kindness and teaching them to be generous and to love unconditionally is living in God's kingdom. As many of you know, our church has sent five or six teams to Greece. Aaron was just talking about it earlier today. Um, I went on one about two and a half years ago uh, to help with the refugee crisis over there. Through those trips, we've served and helped refugees as well as the people, supported the people that work there full time. When I went, that was a lot of what we found our ministry to be. Yeah, we played with the boys in the boys' home, and we, you know, uh, carried boxes of UNICEF food down to the people that needed uh, to come pick up food. But in terms of uh, the wear and tear and strain on the people that are in that full-time, that was where our ministry was. That was restoring God's image in not only these boys and in these people, but also in the workers as well. We also, obviously, as, as many of you know, we work with City of Refuge, which is a local immigration or a local uh, immigrant and refugee group here, whether it's through our bilingual services or whether it's through the English, English as second language classes. Those are preparing people to live in a society um, as God intends them, as um, to realize their full potential, the full potential of creation. So in concluding, here are some thoughts for you guys, uh, some practical applications, some takeaways. What actions can you take to usher in God's kingdom here? We love to talk about it. We love to say we're bringing heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. We love to talk about it, but how can you be about it? What are actions that you can take to actually institute the kingdom and live in it? Does a coworker of yours need an extra measure of kindness or generosity? Is there an area of Silver Spring or even maybe your own neighborhood that, uh, that needs restored or redeemed? What creation can you harness or cultivate? Are there people that you know you can help rediscover that image-bearing identity? Because the truth is we all have that divine breath in us, whether it's following Jesus or whether we're following Jesus or whether we're not. We all have that divine breath. Um, one of my favorite Instagram follows uh, is actually, his name is not Scott the Painter, but that's what I call him to everybody that I talk to him about. Uh, his name is Scott Erickson, and uh, I call him Scott the Painter. His Instagram is, is great. He's an incredible artist and a speaker. Uh, he recently posted this image on uh, this picture of a piece of art that he did on his Instagram a few weeks back, and it really struck a nerve in me. And I actually first saw it a couple years ago. Actually, not a couple years ago. It was like maybe a year and a half ago when I was praying about joining the staff at Restore. And it really just like knocked me on my butt, and I realized like, wow, like this is a Kairos moment. Like this is a moment God is like kind of everything fades into the background and you realize like, wow, like this is really speaking to me. So I wanted to share this with you um, and hopefully it kind of speaks to you as well and it kind of ties up nicely in a bow uh, what, we, what our conversation is about today. Maybe we don't need a burning bush anymore. 
as in some outside flame to validate the calling you know you're supposed to say yes to. Maybe what we need to do is honor the sacred flame that has been burning inside of your very being. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is not here or there as in some vacation destination to visit, but it's being built within your very midst. Remove your sandals and recognize that what is holy is not a plot of earth in the desert somewhere, but the very interior ground of being from which you stand. What is already burning in you? What is already calling to you? What identity have you ignored for so long that you forgot who you even were? Maybe the most sacred response today is to accept its invitation, to listen to the voice. Maybe today is the beginning of your exodus. I think it's interesting that we use Exodus as, a, as an example of our kingdoms and our rule and our oppression. And when maybe today is the beginning of your Exodus, maybe, maybe today is the day that you realize, you know what, I'm going to lay my kingdom aside and I'm going to stop serving myself and look out for my self-interests and I'm going to start living the way my original image bearerness, it's a word, was intended to be. So I'm going to pray. Um, band's going to come back up, but hopefully uh, I've left you with some stuff to chew on and that God has spoken to you today. Um, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, you are good.